Drax is the largest provider of renewable electricity in the UK and plays a critical role in ensuring a secure energy system. The company has plans to invest billions in new infrastructure, such as bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, which will create thousands of jobs, whilst also delivering the energy needed by homes and businesses up and down the UK. Discover more at Drax.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm James Hill and I'm joined today by The Spectator's political editor Katie Balls and John McTurnan, the former Labour advisor. Now, Katie, first of all, it should have been a great week for Labour uh, with those two very impressive by-elections last week in Midbeds and Tamworth. But instead, we're all talking about splits in Labour's French bench on Israel and Gaza. Tell us where we're at in all of this. Yeah, I think what's interesting is, as you say, you would expect this to be on those weeks where Labour cock a hoop when you speak to them. And I was at Rachel Reeves' book launch, more of which I think we'll come to later (laughs) last night. And actually, every conversation you had with a Labour MP there and also just in Parliament is it's being a really difficult week for us. And that is because of Keir Starmer's position on Gaza, on Palestine and how it's being tested. And we've spoken a lot about it this week already on the podcast. But I suppose it's about where now does it go next? Because Keir Starmer had that meeting with Muslim MPs in the party, having now spoken to a few at it, you know, said, you know, it wasn't really this fireworks meeting that I think has ever people like perhaps such as myself and like to suggest they will be. It was pretty calm, but I think it's also fair to say that it didn't fix the discomfort already there over Keir Starmer's position. And though it feels as though he was in listening mode, I don't think it's particularly changed things. Um, it's not a thing you can listen on, because the the demand that's emerging in the Labour Party is an understandable one. Like, the Labour Party is full of members who don't actually like war. So what what should you say about Gaza? Let's have a ceasefire. The ceasefire requires two sides. So Hamas have to agree to a ceasefire, otherwise it is Israeli surrender. And that's the bit that's not articulated. Like, who, who in the Labour Party, who's the enemy in this debate? It should be Hamas, uh, or it should be in domestic politics, the Tory party. It turns out the Labour Party is going through its old trick of uh, our, our own enemy is our leader. I mean, John, how do you think the leadership has handled the issue over the last two weeks? Look, I think it's been fine, but I think also we should have found some other topics to talk about. We shouldn't have two weeks talking about a foreign policy issue, not just a foreign policy issue, a foreign policy issue where the UK government, uh, let alone the UK opposition, which has only 200 MPs, the UK government has no ability to influence. The only government that can influence Israel uh, is the US. I think also if you look, for example, at the number of uh, times the shadow, shadow ministers have been out on the media around this week, it actually seems to be fewer than normal. Um, Today, there's no one out. Yeah, exactly. And I think it just does point to this concern they don't particularly want to get people out there speaking about because they know what the interviews are going to become so it does speak to a lack of confidence I think in terms of where they are in the issue oh it's a total it's a it's it's a a lack of having a strategic grid if the Labour Party had a strategic grid there'd have been there'd have been a policy idea or an attack on Tuesday on Wednesday on Thursday and yeah sure you'd have been asked the inevitable question about do you think Keir handled this well? And you'd have had to give an answer, but actually you'd have had a story on, on, on Tuesday about what's happened about concrete in schools on Wednesday, what's happening about waiting lists on Thursday, what's happened? I, th- there's so many attacks on domestic policy, and I don't know, Katie, if you go to focus groups, certainly what I hear in the focus groups is people say, this government aren't talking about my issues, cost of living, uh, NHS... The issues the public want are the same, and now Labour is caught talking about foreign policy and actually talking about itself 
not even talking about a foreign policy issue, which is the wrong place for an opposition. You should be always pushing the buttons that the, the, the voters want you to push. And it does mean we've got into a position where I think something you spoke about is, oh, Keir Starmer didn't go on Israel-Palestine at PMQs. He went on cost of living because he doesn't want to talk about Israel-Palestine. But then actually you speak to some of the rankers and they say, no, we think it's far more potent and where our voters are to go on cost of living. Obviously, you have a very important crisis going for us, but they don't actually think, you know, where, where voters are who are struggling, you don't stop talking about cost of living just because of a Palestine is happening. But because Keir Starmer looks on the back foot on the issue, everything is then seen the prism of oh I'm not talking about that because of X and I think in terms of where this could now go so for example you now have the early day motion calling for a ceasefire and there's now a shadow minister who signed it today and that's obviously a question for Keir Starmer in terms of you don't sign EDMs if you're in if you're a shadow minister exactly so So it's a choice to resign are they now actually going to say you shouldn't have signed that, so you should resign. Or take your name off. Or take the name off. Or are they just going to let them sign it because it's too much of an open Can't sore? Do that. And I think it's interesting when you also had the question at PMQs that we spoke about, which is saying, you know, Rishi Sunak, aren't you guilty for, you know, ultimately supporting these requirements? Which, and then uh, in the post uh, PMQs lobby, Keir Starmer's spokesman really quite non committal as to whether that was breaching Labour policy or not, because, you know, pause and ceasefire. So I think we are getting to the point now, which is, well, Let's see if Kirsten actually disciplines that, or they, or if they don't, it's just a sign that they just do not know where they want to say on these things because they think the position is so sensitive that it could have you know, unforeseen consequences. And the talk that you know there's about four shadow ministers on resignation watch. Well, they um, should go. Look, they should go. Right. The situation is you. If you act weak, you are weak. Uh, and you can only lead from strength. And Keir's been strong every time he's done things. And I think there's an issue in the. Which in, it's in the. What's happened in MPs, right, in both parts, both sides, uh, Tory and Labour, is the more and more they focus on their constituencies, live in the constituency, do their surgery work. Surgery work, uh, the role of an MP used to be, somebody come to you and say, look, I've, there's a housing problem, and they go, comrade, when there's socialism, we'll sort housing. Being an MP was a downward transmitter of ideology. In the absence of ideology, MPs are the upward transmitter of grievance. And so given constituents come and say, we want a ceasefire, how many Labour MPs are going, you know what, when Hamas offer a ceasefire, then there can be negotiated ceasefire. Nobody's willing to challenge their own voters. They're scared because they don't have an ideological position of their own. And that weakness is in politics on all sides. The MPs have become social workers. They're not politicians. And this is a flare-up of it. But it's very similar in the, in the, the Tory party. Most MPs think that it's what their constituents tell them that's actually what they should argue for. No, you meant to tell your constituents what the truth is according to your party. Yeah. I shouted to one MP the other day who said that, that one of their voters called them, a, a constituents have written an email that mm. then called them a racist and he said, hey, well, I'm not going to have that. You know, you could push back on that yeah, rather than yeah. sort, of, sort of saying that. Yeah. Obviously, slightly separate issue. Rachel Reeves' uh, book launch, you mentioned you were at, Katie. Uh, how damaging are the claims of, are the allegations of plagiarism published in the Financial Times today? Yeah, so it's a really curious one because the Financial Times, of course, I think is one of those newspapers that probably has been very supportive of Rachel Reeves as Shadow Chancellor, often where she goes when she has a statement interview to make. And uh, as as you touch on, ultimately reported on the eve, uh, you know, of a book which is going into today's papers, allegations of 
plagiarism in her book, um, finding that some of the passages of her new book were lifted from sources, including Wikipedia. In the, you know, it spots more than 20 examples of apparent plagiarism in the book, including entire sentences and paragraphs, saying these mostly contained biographical information. And that book, of course, about the women who were forgotten in the past when it comes to economists and, and where we are today. In response, Rachel Reeves has said, my job is pretty consuming and I've got two primary age children, but I wanted to carve out time to write this book. In the acknowledgements, I acknowledge the research assistance that I had, particularly on the facts and the detail that went into the pen portraits of the women that I speak about. And that came from a range of sources, from books, from interviews, from articles from Wikipedia. So there's also a suggestion that they will correct this for any future prints of the book. Now, I think what probably points to is I don't think Rachel Reeves was sat there word by word being like I'll take that paragraph from Wikipedia there oh there's a Hillary Benn piece there you know oh I've got you know a shadow cabinet meeting to get to Um, instead it's one of those things where she's obviously a very very busy politician and she has a team doing it but clearly the due diligence was not in place in terms of both um, you know her overseeing it the researchers on it and of course the publisher and I think that it's not something where I think the scenic rocks her position but it just is something we're already seeing Tory MP who are looking for any reason to try and you know just drag down Labour a bit, undermine them? I think you can imagine the you know autumn statement and so forth. You know Jeremy Hunt's not going to miss any opportunity to say, well, you know, you you say you can write a better autumn statement or budget, you can't write your own book, and you can just see him being used like that already today. All those messages. So I think it's unhelpful for her and clearly bad timing, and that's where we're at too. Yeah, look, I think I think um, it's it, it it's embarrassing. But it's something that can be shrugged off and walked walked away from, because t- for two two reasons. One is the things that hurt you as a politician is if they go to the core of your proposition. Rachel Reeves has never said, Do "You know what? I'm a really really good writer. That's why you should trust me." The public finances. She goes, "I'm an economist. I've got my my spending rules. I'm going to do this." So it doesn't go to the core of her proposition as a politician. And it's also like you know. The basic facts of biography, when somebody was born, where they were born, all of these things, they're hard to make elegant variation on. So if, they, if you draw them from a factual uh, source, whether it's Wikipedia or an encyclopedia, and then you get that and you're writing this stuff up, your own writing about why you respect this woman or, or you, you, you admire this woman or where you put her in labour history or, or political history or economic history, uh, that is the voice of Rachel Reeves. So I think it is something that she'll be able to shrug off. They will not like this day. Um, and you have to kind of you have to push through it and be a bit and be a bigger figure for it. And you, you by and large have to take it on the chin, which I think Rachel's team have, and she's done it, and she's put it, put some words down, and she's going to move on. The issue which Katie talked about that people are looking for things to attack Labour on. I think what's interesting now is we've gone through the conference season. We've had n- no movement uh, in popularity for the Tory Party, no real change in the in, in, in the Labour numbers in the polls. But a definite assumption now amongst business and most political commentators and politicians, a Labour win is now locked in. So the narrative has gone from, is there a chance the Tories can win? And like there used to be a bunch of columns, how the Tories might get there. The column that our people want to write is, could Labour stuff it up? And finally, uh, talking of the Tories there, Katie um, Richardson was giving a big AI speech this morning, talking about the regulation, the future of the industry ahead of that big Bletchley Park summit next week. Talk us about that. Yes, yeah, so this is a speech setting up for the Bletchley Park Summit. And I think it's fair to say that this is one of those areas and there are a couple where Rishi Sunak is very passionate, but probably his backbenchers and even some of his ministers... Um, perhaps even not, number 10. Yeah, number 10. Uh, <laughs> you know, 
think it's interesting, but don't think it's a vote winner, perhaps the focus a year away from an election. Now, the counter, which you'll hear from uh, those around Rishi Sunak, is effectively AI is moving such a fast rate. You guys might laugh now saying, oh, this has nothing to do with X. But in just a year's time, it will have a much more you know, huge impact. And you'll look back and think, we should have been taking this more seriously. I think the question is probably more immediately, is this summit going to attract the attention or do the things the government wanted to do? Now, in the speech today, it was talking about all the ways AI uh, could raise risks. So making it easier to build chemical or biological weapons, spread fear and potentially escape human control. And I think the challenge, obviously, for the summit, which will have some world leaders attending, potentially some bigger figures in the world of tech and beyond um, globally, is does it get to a point where it's obviously about controlling AI to a degree, but I think they also want to do a bit about the potential opportunities. So one thing Rishi Sunak speaks about with colleagues is the idea that AI, I'm seeing a bit of it already, could transform public services if you don't have much money, but actually you get to the point where AI can play these factors. And things also about like he may have some similarities with Tony Blair on some of those areas and what the TBI is doing. And so can this go from what some seem as another like niche Rishi Sunak pet project, very much in the let Rishi be Rishi camp, um, to something which actually does have an impact and potentially as an electoral dividend and looking like you as a politician most ready to grasp it. Well, look, I think the AI thing is a fascinating example of where our politics is. Almost every single Labour politician I know has got a position on whether we should renationalise the railways or renationalise um, uh, the water industry, um, which is relitigating the past. I, ha- I know hardly any who know what are the issues at stake in regulating the future, regulating AI. And there are issues. There's issues of uh, biochemicals and weapons and safety like that. There's, there's huge issues. I've uh, I worked with a colleague who did. Um, I went to a seminar he did for the insurance industry. Insurance is one of the biggest employers in our financial services. Insurance, big employer in our country, in not just London but a dozen cities across. Uh, the UK and he's, he's in this he's a big set of a couple hundred people at seminary he goes okay hands up those who um, uh, work in insurance like a whole bunch of people put their hands up and he goes well your jobs are gone AI is going to kill any white collar job that's based on procedural application of rules that is a lot of people so there's a real issue to be dealt with um, we're not talking about that uh, and is it because people don't know that issue's going on Younger people can see the issues. Um, and so I wonder whether the next um, issue for a politician's book is going to be, it was written by ChatGPT. <laughs> and on that cheery note, uh, thanks, John. Thanks, Katie. And thank you very much for listening to Coffee House Shots. <laughs>